This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're with Reality Check Radio. It's Rodney Hyde, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, we've had some exciting and great guests, and um, you're going to love our next guest and the story that you're going to ha- hear. It's a story that has never been properly told. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, the reluctance of people that know the story to tell it, and also the treatment uh, being meted out um, by the people who try and tell the story. The New Zealand news media have always just a sort of single narrative or a single way of looking at things. This is good, this is bad. And they don't see the nuance uh, that is life. But um, we've got a very special man with us this morning his name is james harrison he grew up in the glorivale christian community uh he and his wife and children escaped and he has agreed uh really for the first time to come on a news outlet and tell his story of his family of his life of Glorivale, and also to relate it to having escaped Glorivale, which some would describe as a cult, and finding himself back in it with the COVID tyranny. So it's going to be a very, very interesting discussion. Good morning, James. Good morning, Rodney. Now you're Uh, James Harrison. Yes. I was Tell me. born James Harrison, and then um, my dad changed our name, surname to Ben Cain and when I was about 10. And then when we, about four or five years ago, we changed it back to Harrison, basically because I got sick of spelling Ben Cain and out to every person that rung me on the phone. So well, <laughs> I was a, gonna, a bit of a pragmatic reason. I was going to have to ask you, um, before we went on here, how to pronounce Ben Canaan. Tell me, what is the significance of Ben Canaan that you, for your dad? Well, I think he he said it was a sort of biblical name. It's derived from Hebrew. Um, ben means son of, and Canaan was the promised land in the Old Testament that the, God promised the people mm. of Israel. But mm. he actually got the name out of a novel that he was reading to us children at the time. Um, it was a, and the hero was Ari Ben Canaan. And so that was sort of his motivation, I guess. Okay. Now, tell me, James, um, you've got an extraordinary tale to tell. Let's start at the beginning. When we, when were, what year were you born, and where were you born? Uh, so I was born in seventy four, uh, January seventy four. I was born in the Rangiora Hospital, which I think is not far from where you grew up. Um, it's where but, I was born in. No, I was born in Oxford Hospital, but I uh, right. I grew up in Cust and Rangiora. Yes. Yeah. So um, yeah, my dad went to the Rangiora High School. Um, but my family was living at Cust at the time, 
Um, and my dad um, owned the farm there at Cast. Um, it was passed down from his dad. Uh, and my dad uh, married the daughter of Neville Cooper at the time. He was an evangelist um, over from Australia. And he sort of settled in the Rangura Kasti area. My dad married his daughter. And my dad ended up um, giving his farm to the church to build the original community on that cust there. So George Harrison was your granddad. That's right. It was originally his farm. And uh, Neville Cooper, as he was then known, the evangelicist, he came over from Australia, what, in the 1960s, 67, thereabouts? Yeah, it was late 60s, um, yeah, around 67, 68, somewhere around there. Okay, and then the farm went from your grandfather, George, to your father, whose name was? John. John Harrison. Funny, yeah. George Harrison, John Harrison, sounds like the Beatles. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and then... Your Neville Cooper, what started a church group which your father and grandfather became members of? So yeah, it started um, as as a church, pretty pretty much like any other church, really, yes. in those early days, um, and then it sort of it gradually. Uh, grew into community. It wasn't until the late 80s that they actually started living in community. Um, in the early days, it was just like a normal church, pretty much. And then it started, um, they saw in the scriptures about sharing and caring for one another. And, and so they sort of started sharing everything. Um, probably one of my favorite stories relating to that was um, my dad was given money to buy a new car um, when he was in his early 20s. It was after he was married. And there was some other poorer families in the church that didn't have cars. So instead of buying a new car, he went and bought two older cars, one for himself and one for another couple and nice. the church did it up and gifted it to the other couple. Um, so that sort of gives you an insight into, into what they were thinking back then and, and the sharing life that they were trying to establish. And I, it was really admirable. And I think it was an amazing thing that they were trying to do back in those yes. early days. Because it was very what you'd call communitarian, wasn't it? It was like a yeah. true community. And tell me, so when you were born, you went to the farm that ultimately became the community. But at the yeah. time that you were born, the rest of the church members weren't living there. No. Um, when I was very young, um, I can remember meeting on Sundays in the St. John's Ambulance Hall in Rangiora. Yes. That's where we had our Sunday meetings. And we were living on the farm. Um, and then probably when I was about 10 years old, um, we started having meetings and camp. 
and they they had built a school there by that time. Um, and then in the early 80s, um, they built the first um, hostel accommodation unit and people started moving onto the site and then that sort of grew through the 80s. And then by the, by the late 80s, it was like full community. All the meals were together. Everyone was wearing the same clothes. Um, all the money was pulled and, and it was, yeah, full-on community. How many brothers and sisters do you have, John? Um, so I have 12. I just James. called you John. James? Um, yeah, I've got 12 siblings. Um, so my, my mum came from a family of 16 children and then she had 13 and yeah we've got 15 so <laughs> it's in the blood <laughs> just go through those numbers again your mum came from a family of 16 you've she had 13 children yeah and you and your wife have had 15 yeah that's a lot of cousins at his, yeah. At, at one stage, um, a few years ago, my my mum and dad had um, ninety six grandchildren. Uh, that that's going back five or six years ago. It would probably be well over a hundred by now, I think. And they're still alive. Um, no, my dad passed away. Uh, I, sorry. April last year. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's tough. But yeah, my, my mum's still alive. Great. Now, um, so you grew up from the age of 10 and developing in a community which was largely closed to the outside world in the sense that you had your own schooling, um, yeah. church on site. Um, yeah. The men would go out and work in the community being tradespeople yep. and the like obviously services would come in uh, um, the woman they went out to go shopping and have babies yeah back back in those early days um, it was mainly my grandfather did most of the um, well, I know he he bought all the food. He would go to the the markets in Christchurch and that and buy all the food. Okay, um, I'm not sure sort of about the the other household stuff. I guess the ladies probably did that. Um, mm. Yeah, and your grandfathers, of course, you've got two in the community, both very strong. One, the evangelist called Neville Cooper, later to become hopeful Christian. And then your father, my, John, my grandfather George, George Harrison. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna. You're gonna have to help me here. So you grew up in a very religious Christian closed community, yeah. where ultimately the women all wear the wore the long dresses and had the bonnets on their heads. Um, yeah. And what was your? You went to school in the community. Yeah, all my schooling was in the community, yep, right from the start to the end. And what were you taught about life? <laughs> we're, basically, um, well, I guess probably in my schooling years, it was pretty much the same curriculum that um, a lot of other schools did. 
um, as time went on, they more focused the curriculum on training children to be good community children. Um, okay. They weren't wanting to train them to have a, a life outside the community. It was all focused on how they could um, better serve the community. But in my schooling years, yeah, I, I think I pretty much did what most other kids my age would have done. So over time, it became increasingly insular. Yeah. yeah was, it a happy, was it a happy childhood? I had an amazing childhood. I don't think I could ask for a better childhood. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, loving on the farm and um, friends and family around all the time. And we did amazing stuff, built tree huts down the hill and fought one another and did all, all the crazy stuff that boys back in those days used to do. Um, and, and right through my teenage years, um, yeah, I had an amazing childhood. Couldn't ask for better. Well, as you say, I, I grew up in Rangu and I visited the community and I wondered about that. And when I say I visited, I worked there for several days doing a driveway with a group of men. And I thought it looked amazing. And in some parts of me envied your lifestyle because you were very self-sustained too, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. There was always a focus on growing all our own food um, as much as possible. Obviously yeah. there were some things that couldn't be grown, but yeah. huge vegetable garden. Um, and everyone working food. literally as a community. And yep. the other thing uh, it was I have never seen in my life happier kids. Yeah, that, that was me. I was one of those kids. You would have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were yeah. bouncing around, they're trampolines, and it was joy, literally joyous. And I can remember at lunchtime everyone singing and saying a prayer. And yeah. um obviously to me, it also looked a bit isolating from the rest of the world and the outside yep. world. And um, it also seemed to me to be a bit of a prison in the sense that everyone would very, at a very young age, would get married. And you think, well, you know, I wonder how that goes. So who were the four? Obviously, hopeful Christian Neville Cooper was a very, very powerful. He was, when you met him, he was a very, very powerful man. Yeah. It's hard to describe, isn't it? It is. He was a an amazing speaker. Um, yes, I can remember that. Amazing power. And and then, yeah, if you got on the wrong side of him, yeah, he, he let you know. And, um, yeah, he had a way of um, putting down people that didn't agree with them. Yes. Um, and that, in a way, uh, that became a very bad thing because he lost all accountability um, yes. because anyone who disagreed was just pushed aside yes. um, and they would end up leaving. And he was um, your he was your grandfather? Yeah, he was my grandfather, yeah. And I'm just trying to think now, he was your wife's grandfather too? No, no, he was my, no. So he's my mum's, my mum's father. 
Okay, that's no, right. No, no that's relation right. to my wife. No. Okay, and so um, by force of character and ability, he was the community in the sense that he said what would happen next and everyone would have to go along with it, and willingly so. Yeah. They had, they always had men's meetings to make the decisions and that, but that was basically hopeful getting all the men to see things his way. Yes. Um, that's what the meeting was. Well, um, he's incredibly persuasive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I heard him preach on the streets on a Friday night in Rangura, I'm going to say in the 70s. Yeah. And he was hypnotic. He, he yeah. would speak to a group, and I've never experienced anything like it before or since, where he could, you'd literally be walking past, and he would be weaving a spell. Yeah, I believe it. No, he was an amazing speaker. Yeah, and and it's um, until you've experienced it, it's quite hard for people to believe it, right? So he he was uh, we've picked it up. We had a glitch. We've picked it up again. He was a, a very hypnotic speaker. So basically, he was the father figure and wielded, for better or worse, a tyrannical control over the community. Yeah, I, yeah, it became a tyrannical control over time. Um, it just, yeah, his personality and it was his way or the highway, basically. Um, do you think, do you think it, he planned it that way or do you just think that's the way it evolved, that he was a good I man? Yeah, I, the other people... I know others. There are others that would disagree me disagree with me on this, but I feel that that's just the way it developed because of yes. his personality, um, because he sort of shut other other churches and that off over time and lost accountability. Yes, um, but I don't think he planned it that way. Yes. So when you were growing up. Um, what was your view of the outside world? Uh, my view of the a pretty scary place. Um, yeah, very evil. Um, there was everyone out there was pretty bad. Um, and yeah, it was just a pretty terrifying and scary place. Because that's a clever thing to do in order to get further your yep. tyrannical control, isn't it? Like it's a, yep. a communist dictator thing. There's a scary world beyond our borders. Yeah, and on top of that, um, all the other churches were uh, false false believers. Um, they had a false gospel. Um, we were the only true church. And so you couldn't leave Gloryvale or Springbank as it then was and and be a Christian still, um, you would be lost and go to hell because you would be leaving the true church and, and going out, either going out and 
being a completely lost worldly person or going out and if you joined another church you were still lost because you had left the true church so so you growing up only had friends from within the community yes yeah and Um, you had no you had no opportunity like sport or schooling no to learn or meet anyone else no, I we had neighbouring farmers that um, I would meet on the odd occasion. Um, never met children my age. Only I only ever met like the the adults. Um, I don't know if that was by design or that's just the way it happened. But the the rea- the interactions with um, our neighbours were very brief and, you know, you might just say hello, say a few words and that was it. But, yeah, not really anything to do with them much. And when I came there working, um, you would, I mean, everyone was very pleasant to me. Yeah. But the only thing I do remember is my foreman coming to tell me it was a very hot summer's day. And I was a young boy, and the foreman came along and said, "Mr. Cooper's asked you to put your shirt on because he doesn't <laughs> want he doesn't want to give the girls the wrong idea." And it was quite funny because then my foreman says, "I don't know what he's talking about because half of them are pregnant," and um, <laughs> but which I thought was quite funny at the time. But tell me, um, your view of me as an outsider working away there? Would you see me as? scary or someone to be um sorry for how would you regard an outsider um i i probably scary in a way um we just would avoid you and not yes you didn't have anything in common with us you were a bad person um we were taught to be respectful yes um, very very polite um but avoid avoid getting into conversation or anything you might um draw us away uh from mm. the from the community i guess didn't you did you have a a curiosity about what went on beyond the fence i not really i think um yeah i i don't remember really being that interested to be honest, I mean, um, we had a pretty good life. And, yeah, I, I don't think as a kid, I don't remember being that interested in what went out on outside, actually. Interesting. Um, your mum and dad, uh, they were true believers too? Yep. So uh, the expectation was for you would be to get a trade was it or what was the expectation that you would do for work uh, sorry I, I'm you cut out a little bit there. Uh, what was the expectation for you that you would do for work um to do for work um I would just do whatever the leaders decided um for the community, um, I was very, very keen on being a farmer. Yes. Um, I was in my blood, um, and 
I remember in my last year of high school, I was terrified that when I left school, I wasn't going to be allowed to work on the farm. Um, and I remember worrying about that a lot. And it, it, yeah, it got me quite depressed thinking that I might not be allowed to work on the farm. And it wasn't a part of that was um, they would often say so if I was good, a good farmer, um, they would deliberately put me into a different type of work because it was good for me to put down my flesh and my own desires and yeah. do something that was hard for me. Um, so, yeah, that might seem strange to you, no. but that's, that's the way it was. Uh, and by the way, when you slept, did you sleep in a dormitory-type situation? Um, so back... Until I was about 12 years old, um, we lived in our own house. I mean, in the late 80s, as we moved into community, um, we had a hostel. Um, and just trying to remember, there was my mum and dad had a room where they stayed with, say, the youngest two or three kids. And then there was a bedroom that my sisters lived in and a bedroom beside that that um, and my brothers lived in. And when you um, had so, your meals, you didn't eat as a family, but as a community. Yeah, that's right. Once in the late 80s, once we started sort of living in community, then we had all communal meals as well. We sat, mm -hmm. um, like there was rows of tables and our family would sit together on one place in the table. That was our designated family area. Um but it was yeah, 150 people there all eating together. And how do you get on in a community living? Because presumably some people work harder and some people are a bit lazy and don't pull their weight. Was that a problem living in that community that you'd say, um, oh, Bob there's not didn't do much to help with dinner? It is a problem, but um, I guess as, as a Christian, um, there was always pressure put on the lazy ones to work harder and pull their weight and us ones that worked hard <laughs> forgive me but us ones that worked hard were taught to um not look down on the others but you know be patient mm. with them and and it was good for us to you know put up with their weakness and um you know uh, well, the listeners won't see you like I can see you, but I can tell you that you're looking at a very um, healthy man. He looks like he could still uh, put on an all-black shirt and and uh, come uh, out as a come out as a good lock or a prop, um, James. Now, uh, I was asking about work. So, what you would do in your job was not to be decided by you and your mum and dad, but no. by the community, by basically by Neville Cooper. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so you were, me, you were scared that I want to be a farmer, but I may not end up farming because Neville Cooper decides something else. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, um, I remember the day I left school, um, my dad came to me and he said, um, now I've gone and had a talk to Hopeful 
Um, Nev- he was hopeful. No, he was still Neville then, actually. <laughs> I've gone and talked to Neville, and I asked him if you could work on the farm because my dad was the farm manager. Um, and hopeful said, yes, you can. Um, but you're going to get involved in the dairy farm, whether you like it or lump it. That was my dad's exact words. Wow. And I hated dairy cows. I, <laughs> I'd been involved with the sheep and I loved sheep farming and I hated the dairy cows. And I was like, mm, I hate this. But I thought, oh, well, that's what I've been told. So I'll, I'll get stuck in and I'll learn to love it. And yeah, within six months, I absolutely loved dairy farming. And that's what I've done ever since. And how old were you when you left high school? I was 15. 15. Well, yeah. So, like, we finished school um, at the end of December, like, yeah. well, December, like usual. And I was 14 then, and I turned 15 at the end of January. So, Got it. yeah. Now, your cohort, your the boys that were your age and a bit older, a bit younger, what did they go off and do? Oh, um, trying to think. One of my classmates became an electrician. Yeah. Um, he started training to become an electrician as soon as he left school. Um, one of them became a deer farmer. Um, yeah. He was running the deer farm with um, his brother. Um, another one was put in the engineering workshop um, doing automotive engineering. Um, yeah. And that was all with community members. They didn't go and do an electrician with Bob down the road who wasn't part of the community. Yeah, they were all um, all apprenticed to men within the community. Got it. Um, if any outside training needed doing, um, they would do as much as possible by correspondence. Um, but then you know, sometimes they had to go to block courses and stuff. Yeah. Um, but as much as possible, it was within the community. And what about the girls? Uh, the girls went straight to, uh, what do we call it, domestic duties. Um, so they were rostered on cooking, cooking one day, um, cleaning another day, washing another day, um, yeah, and that that there was no opportunity for them to do anything else, okay. um, even if they wanted to. And did you have any money? Yeah, we um, we were given pocket money when I was around ten. 10 to maybe 15 years old, I remember getting pocket money every week. It was something like 10 cents for every year of your age, um, which in those days was actually reasonably significant. Um, But that got stopped, um, yeah, when I was in my early early to mid-teens. We're just cutting out a bit there, listeners. I do apologise, but it's so interesting. We'll keep at it. So you, um, James here is living on a dairy farm. Why do we expect the the Labor government's been terrible to farmers of their connection? Tell me, um, James, when you started 
you got the pocket money. When you started working as a dairy farmer, did you get paid? No, no. I never, I've never had any, any right from when I started working when I was 15 um, to all my working life, never, never had any money given to you as a, mm. as a wage. Like if you went to town or something and you, you would be given some money um, to spend if necessary and when you came back from town you had to give an account of the money you spent and what you spent it on got it and i don't mean to pry but um and and go too personal but this will be interesting and important how was the expectation is is that you'd marry with someone within the community Oh, absolutely, without without exception. So, dating isn't like how we would date on the outside. You'd understand no. that now. So, how no. did you meet your wife, and how did you get married? Yeah, my story is probably very different to a typical Gloryvale story, but um, my wife. Uh, joined the community when she was 13. Mm -hmm. um, she came from a very broken home um, and she she was sort of adopted into a family within the community. Um, and she yeah, came it, she came at 13 on her own. Yeah, sort of no. Um, I think her mum her mum brought her there. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, and then Hope, uh, after a while, Hope didn't want to leave. She was like, nah, that's where I'm staying. Because she she felt loved in the family in Gorivale and, you know, part of a loving family. Um, and she was like, nah, I'm staying here. Good. Um, but then, yeah, our, I guess... I don't know how much I want to say here. I'll just say <laughs> we were probably a bit rebellious and um, maybe worked things out a, a bit for ourselves. Um, but I'll tell you the, the way it's supposed to be. Um, so I would say go to my dad or to Hopeful and say, I want to get married Um we would pray about it and then I'd go back to him a couple of weeks later and he would say, um, well, I think it's so-and-so, go away and pray about it. And you would be like, yep, hopeful you're right, it is that person. <laughs> and then there was a, a short courtship, probably six weeks is pretty typical, and, and then you get married. And you get married quite young. Yeah, um, uh, there, there has been guys that have got married at 16 um, uh, and and girls that young too. Uh, probably the, and uh, in more recent years, it has um, got older, but um, typically for, for most of my life there, probably the average age for the guys was 18, I guess. And girls probably more like twenty. Okay. So uh, you don't need to go into any detail, but we can detect that there was a um, girl from the outside 
came in at 13, gets a bit older. There's a young strapping boy who are mutually attracted to each other, and they might have skipped a bit of the praying bit, and um, it became love uh, ahead of Hopeful's, Hopeful's blessing. And um, probably by the time uh, you got around to asking Hopeful about it, you were a very sure of things and you're a bit rebellious and so you got married how old were you when you married uh so i was 19 and i pretty much just turned 20 and hope was 17. nice uh that's lovely and you started having a family probably immediately yep pretty much and your expectation was that you would live your entire life in the community and die within the community. Yeah, absolutely. And your Christianity, your brand of Christianity, um, was it obviously your living arrangements and working arrangements and family arrangements weren't typical, but was the Christianity that you were following sort of standard rough enough Christianity or was it some oddities? Um, there, no, definitely some oddities. Um, and there's a there's a, a document I've read um, written by a, a Christian group that sort of gives an outline of beliefs of different groups and stuff. And they in this article they went through Gloria Bell's beliefs and they came to the conclusion that. Um, Gloryvale has some beliefs that put it outside of Christian orthodoxy yes. and therefore can't be uh, you could haggle over that you just cut out then uh, James just tell us that put it outside orthodoxy and said and said that you you couldn't call it Christian um, okay. and a true sense of Christianity. Um, you know, that, that's the... What we the, might... The whole, obviously, the, the living in community thing is yeah. very unusual in Christian groups and, yeah. um, you know, not having any personal possessions and submitting yourself to the, yeah. the leadership and the way they do. Yeah. Um, so you got married, you presumably had a child within a year. Yep, within nine months, pretty much. <laughs> Good for you. I can, yeah, you do look like that, all black. Um, you are, a, a, I do remember this, remarkably healthy and athletic-looking uh, community. Um, very because um, You lived on the best food, right? Yeah, I hopeful, um, so Neville, who became hopeful Christian, was... The very interested in nutrition. He used to read books on healthy diet all the time. And he used to talk to the ladies in the kitchen about the food and everything and make sure the diet was going to be good. And uh, compared to a, a typical diet out here, um, yeah, very healthy diet, um, a lot of vegetables, um, meat and vegetables. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, no fast food. Yeah, you might have like fast food 
once or twice a year at best. Yeah. Um, and you're baking bread and growing everything yeah. on site. Yeah. And uh, it was wonderfully fresh produce. Yeah. And it was a traditional diet and probably not a lot of sugar. No, very little sugar. Um, yeah. yeah. And did the men drink any alcohol? No, that was an absolute no, no. And right no smoking? The, no smoking, no. And probably no drugs? Uh, definitely no drugs. So it was and, a remarkable upbringing. And anyone in the community who was a little bit overweight, hopeful, would hound them and um, <laughs> nag them until they got <laughs> into shape. So, yeah. Wow, that's great. Um, I could have done with a month there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or probably now a year. Um, a year. Yeah. So tell me. Um, and that's what I observed, James. You know, I, I looked at this community and I've never been happy with how it's been characterized in, in the media. And it's like so much of life. Um, you know, that Alexander Solzhenitsyn line that good and evil, it'd be so much easier if there were good people and there were evil people and we could divide them up. Yeah. And the media present the world like that. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it's much more complicated because the good, the line between good and evil runs through our own hearts. Yep. And um, when you're, when I saw that community, there was so much to be impressed about and so much to admire. And I'll never, till the day I die, forget how, and it would have been you and your 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 friends and brothers and sisters how wonderfully, joyously happy and healthy they looked compared to every other kid you could see on uh, in the world outside. Yeah. Um, I, I guess what I would say on that, the media issue, the way the media has portrayed Gloria Vale over the years, um, I think a factor in that is the fact that Gloria Vale is Christian Yes. Um, and I think the media attacks Christianity. Yes. Um, and they like a sensational story, obviously. Yes. Um, and a sex story. A sex story, yep. Mm. And uh, I'm not going to, I'm not here to try and say everything at Goreval is rosy either. Of course um, you know, not. Serious problems there. And what what I've described in the early days of a wonderful, caring, sharing spirit and that developed into living in community, that ended up becoming communism, yes. basically, where um, everything was shared out and you, you didn't give from your heart because you wanted to help somebody else. You never had anything to give. It was yes. taken and everyone got exactly the same share. Um, and so it just became a mechanical thing and it, and it lost the heart of what it was set out to be. Yes. And, of course, as time went on, it became increasingly tyrannical and quite possibly <laughs> arbitrary. And yeah, and as, as it grew, um, try and keep it together, um, the leaders developed just more and more rules, more and more control. Mm. Um, and I, I, if you don't mind, I'll just go back to what you, the point you were making before about um, Christianity. So 
just to try and put it as briefly as I can, so so I think that um, any of your listeners that are Christian will probably understand what I'm saying here. But um, so we would describe Gloravale as being very legalistic. So the the biblical way of salvation, according to the Bible, is we're all sinners. We we all fail. We break God's law and aid our sin penalty and when we put our trust in Christ our sin is forgiven and our sin is put on Christ. Gloria Vale has become a very legalistic belief system where you work and you earn your way to heaven basically. Um, the, the better person you are the more chance you've got at going to heaven and so then that develops into the leaders make a whole lot of rules to, you know, to keep people safe, to keep them within the boundaries, um, to help them get to heaven. And so they sort of, they've missed the whole point of the gospel where it's Christ that saves us. And they've made the community the saviour. And if you bail the rules, if you do what the leaders tell you to do, um, if you submit yourself, all that, that secures your salvation. That's a very, very uh, insightful comment, and it allows me, and I'm assuming our listeners, to much better understand it. And I look at and often think about churches being creations of men, not Jesus yeah. and God. <clears throat> well, there there are some that are. I would have to say. Um, okay. Yeah, ideally. Um, and a, you're just cutting and, out again, but, James. It's so killing me because um, oh, I'm blaming Jacinda Ardern. Tell me, <laughs> um, what church do you attend now, James? Um, so we attend a Baptist church in Tamaru. And um, you chose a Baptist church because it was a good community, uh, because it followed theological principles that you agreed to with. What brought you to a Baptist church? Yeah, so I guess um, there, there's a number of factors there. Um, the fact that it's a tamaru, that's sort of a separate issue. But um, when it's a, what most people would call a very conservative church. Yes. Um, and for people that have just come out of glory of our witches, super conservative um yes. there's obviously an attraction there um but it was a church that my wife and i believed their sole focus was on preaching the scripture and and following what the word of god says um so that was what attracted us there um the fact that it's tomorrow is um because i had a a nephew and another friend that had left glory of alabama two years before that they were both young men that had worked for me on the farm at Gloryville and they ended up down here and okay. I was able to keep in contact with them and so it was sort of a logical place to come I guess okay so you started having children yep. and and um, didn't stop and didn't stop <laughs> <laughs> I love that I, look man 
I love kids so much that I envy you with 15 kids. I truly, <laughs> truly do. There are times when they infuriate you and you're <laughs> overworked and that. And um, but they give there's nothing like kids to bring such joy. My 34-year-old visited and he brings me such joy. He's got a little boy and he lives in the United States and he visited and nothing else of your life that you've achieved matters than to see these wonderful kids growing up and going through all the trials and tribulations of life and making mistakes and getting it right. And it's just the most joyous thing. I, 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 I think you've done wonderfully, you and your wife. But moving along, something happened or over time you decided to leave this yeah. community that you had known nothing else. Your wife had come from tough circumstances and fallen in love with the community and had grown up in the community. And outside is this world that you've been warned of ever since you can remember. And you took, I'm going to ask you how many kids you had and what year it was, but you decided to leave. That must have been extraordinary. Yeah, um, I would say it's the hardest thing by far that I've ever done in my life. Um, and hopefully it's the hardest thing I'll ever do. <laughs> yes. Um, but no, it, it's so we, we had 12 children. When we left, um, my wife was pregnant with our 13th, um, and that was in March 2015. Um, it came about um, over a period of probably a couple of years, I started to have serious questions about some of the doctrines that were being taught at Gloryvale, um, and I had access to some teaching from uh, preachers in America, um, which was a banned substance. That was, um, yeah, another of the list of banned substances at Gloryville was um, alternative teaching. And I could see that this teaching I was listening to was more biblical than what I was getting taught at Gloryville. And I started to ask questions, um, speak up a little bit too much, and I got myself in a bit of trouble. Um, and there was a, a friend of mine um, around the same time was sort of going through a similar thing, but uh, he was a bit bolder than me and spoke out a lot more. Um, and he ended up getting separated from his wife. Um, his wife wanted to go with him at one stage, but she was talked out of it by the leaders and he was sent away by himself. And so we He was excommunicated from the community. Yes, yeah. And it had happened. He wasn't the first one that that had happened to. There was others before that too that were excommunicated. And um, there, there seemed to be a bit of a habit, and, and it's happened since then as well that that they'd excommunicate the husband and they would 
talk the wife into staying. Um, and I think women being a bit more emotionally motivated, it's probably easier to talk them around. And they, they had a doctrine of um, if the children left the community, they would go to hell. Um, but if the wife stayed there, her faith would save the children, even though the children were outside in the world. Wow. Uh, it's not a biblical doctrine. Of course. <laughs> so that was taught very strongly. So this friend that was excommunicated, he went with his children. Uh, his wife finished. Well, his oldest son had left, but um, the rest of the children and the wife stayed there. And so he so didn't have a choice to leave. He was kicked out. Well, they sort of give you a choice. The, the, the choice, it's like the choice of taking the shot or not. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, yeah I, I call it a choice if you want to, but. Um, it's, it's not much a choice. You know, I've, I've got to deny um, what I believe, deny my conscience, um, yeah. never speak out again, just submit myself, keep my head down. And, you know, anyone with any integrity can't do that. Um, so, so he, yeah. He just left and left his wife and apart from his oldest son, his children behind. Yeah, I... I'm not 100% clear on whether he was told he had to leave or okay. you know, how much the difference is. But, Come back um, to your situation, but, what you do know. So you were having these questions. You were starting to speak out. Was your wife on board with your speaking out in position? Uh, she was very scared. Um, she said to me a number of times, oh, you know, you, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You need to just, you know, keep quiet, keep your head down, just keep it to yourself. Good reason. Um, and the reason I, I told the story of my friend is because that affected the way we decided to leave the community in the end. Um, we did it very secretively um, because we didn't want the leaders to have the opportunity to try and talk my wife out of it. We wanted to keep our family together. Um, we had two two daughters that were in the late their late teens, and one of them was quite soft-hearted and probably could have easily been talked out of leaving. And so we discussed it, uh, my wife and I and our older kids, and decided that we weren't going to let anyone know and we would just escape, sneak out, literally in the middle of the night. Wow. Tell me about the night you left. How did you do it? <clears throat> so just I'll backtrack a little bit. Please. Um, in 2011. Uh, oh, you're just cracking up a bit. Can I, can I get you to turn your video off, James? And it might just okay. improve the audio. Yeah. We blame the Labour government for shocking infrastructure services up and down this great country and how they've ignored and mistreated our farming folk uh, to make us downtrodden and dependent. James, that'll be better. Take us <laughs> back down. a bit. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. So 
Um, going back to 2011, um, the community bought a another property uh, about 20 kilometres away from Gloryvale um, with the intention of building another community there in the future. Um, it was a dairy farm and I was put there as the manager. Um, and just I'll, I'll tell a little story which you'll probably find interesting. On the the morning when we took possession of the property, which was 1st of June, 2011, um, myself and three other younger guys that were going to be working for me, we were called into a room with one of the leaders and he said to us now, you're going to be going out there away from the community, running that property and the neighbour there um, We've got to be very careful of her. She's She has said openly that if anyone tries to leave Gloryvale, she will help them. So she's our enemy. So we need to be very careful of her. Um, when I look back at that now, I'm just like, wow, that is just nuts. Um, but that was just sort of the way they thought, you know, anyone who, who would help someone leave, wow, they were just like, they were doing Satan's work. Um, yeah, and so I was running that property, uh, that dairy farm, and I would live there quite often with my family. Sometimes on weekends, we would go and stay in the house there. Um, and so when we decided to leave the community in March 2015, it, it didn't look odd that we were staying out there for the weekend. Got it. Uh, and so we we had taken all our the clothing um, and some blankets and stuff, and we organised for a um, a guy from the church in Tamaru here came up with a, a rental van, um, drove up and picked up my wife and the younger children at about seven o'clock. This was a Saturday night. And myself and the three older children went back into the community and I had written a letter um, to the whole community explaining our reasons for leaving. And I did that because what happens, the leaders tell the story and Normally, I mean, they'll just spin it any way they want to. They'll say, oh, they left for this reason or that reason and um, because they don't want people to know the truth. Um, so we wrote this letter and at two o'clock in the morning, we went around every bedroom and slipped a copy of the letter. Oh, my the goodness. Door, on, on the door of every bedroom. And then um, we drove out um drove down to the gate, the night watchman looked in the car, saw who it was, waved us through, because um, they have a they have a night watchman on the gate every night to stop anyone coming in, I guess. Um, yeah, and then we drove down to Timaru. Um, Just and, help me here, James. How were you able to communicate with yeah. someone from Timaru in the church? So because I was living, because I was working on that farm, managing that farm, um, I was allowed to have a cell phone. Okay. Um, and so, and mainly for business purposes, like I'd ring, you know, farming companies and stuff to order stuff and 
um, and also that was the only way I could contact the community as well was with a cell phone out there. And so I used the cell phone for, I was very scared that they were going to look through the contacts and yes. see who I had been ringing and stuff. So I would delete my um, the, the, my call. And how did you have a sense that you could, uh, how did you have a sense that you could trust this outsider? Well, this outsider was my nephew. Um, Even so? Oh, I I guess for a start, I didn't. I didn't trust him. Um, for a start, my main contacting him was trying to convince him to come back to the community. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, he started, he made me think hard about um, stuff. He would, he would put tough thoughts in my mind that would make me think that, and realise that actually I was being told quite a lot of lies by the leaders at Gloryvale. Um, and there was a lot of stuff being said about this church down at Timaru that just wasn't true. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, I guess we would have been very fearful of leaving Gloryvale because, honestly, at that stage, I probably still did believe that they were the only real true church in, in New Zealand anyway. I, I did know of churches in America that I believed to be good churches, but I thought, no, nah, New Zealand, they're a pretty wicked country. There won't be any decent churches in New Zealand. Um and then from talking to him, I thought, okay, this church in Timaru sounds pretty good. So, um, yeah, so this was, I think you said March 2015? Sorry, I missed, I missed that question. It cut out again. Was that March 2015 that you left? Yes. Yep. How old were you? Uh, I would have been 40. 40. Oh, no, no, 42. 42. Yeah, 42. Just, just for our listeners that are tuned in, because we forget, because James and I have been here since the beginning, but you're listening to Reality Check Radio. Uh, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're having a fascinating discussion with James Harrison, who is grew up in the Gloravale community and escaped with his wife with 12 children yeah. and one on the way. and He's telling us the extraordinary story of his life and of life growing up in Gloravale, the good and the bad. And we've just got up to him and his wife escaping out into the world and heading with his escapee nephew, who's established in Timaru at the Baptist Church, and heading out into what your whole life you've been told is evil yep were you scared very very scared um and my, my wife was more scared than i was um and, and how yeah, old was I, your youngest child so our youngest boy was two uh ne nearly two at that time my goodness yeah so what happened um, then james so we left, um, as I said, in the, in the middle of the night, literally. Um, we took, um, 
Now, this isn't to say that Gloria Vale wouldn't have given us some money to help us out if we had have, you know, done it what they would call the right way, you know, gone talk to the leaders and told them we were leaving. But we knew of two smaller families that had left um, a year or so before us, one of them being my nephew, and they had... Oh, dear. ...were family. You just scratched up your, your, your nephew left, and what did he take? What did he get? So they get... They gave him $1,000, um, and he had a wife and three children at the time. Okay. And so I thought, well, you know, if we do it the right way and you know, ask for their blessing, um, they might give us $2,000 because we're a big family. Um, but we thought the risk, you know, what's $2,000 at the risk of um, having having your family split up? So yes. we thought, well... We'll just take, took some clothes and some blankets and a few, you know, personal mementos, I guess. So um, you are you are 42 with, it's hard for me to keep up, 12 children and a 13th on the way, youngest two, yep. with the clothes that you stand up in. Yep. Um, but, yeah, the... the crazy thing was um, we came down to Timaru that was sort of midnight Saturday night and a couple in Timaru um, offered us their house to live in and they put up a tent on the lawn uh, sorry still <clears throat> cracks me up a bit talking about it um, okay take your time they, they, they put up a tent on the lawn and lived in the tent for six weeks while we um, savaged their house, I guess, with, with our 12 <laughs> children. Um, that is a story and a half, isn't it? Isn't yeah, that I the most... Can't, that I is can't the most, get my head around it still. And they were complete strangers to you? Complete strangers, yep. And they were members of the Baptist Church? Yes, yep. And what a wonderful, still, wonderful, wonderful Christian thing. They're still some of our best friends. I bet they are. Uh, yeah. What yeah. Is, and what isn't so, that? Isn't that? I mean, that cracks me up. It's just so <laughs> heartfelt, beautiful. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Um, and the the really stunning thing for us was we'd been told all our lives that you know the the so-called Christians out in the world they don't love one another. They don't share anything and you know we came down here and we were just blown away we'd never been loved like we were loved then um and still yeah it just amazes me you're bringing tears to my eyes with the thought of um i think of myself as a kind person but um to open my house up to escapees with 12 kids and a pregnant yeah. woman who live on a tent that's um truly and, truly uh, wonderful uh, rodney i just just add to that our our family isn't I, I don't want to make it sound too bad but our family can be a bit wild um, oh i bet and <laughs> so yeah it's not like 12 um 
children that are, you know, prim and proper and no. always neat and tidy and everything. They're, um, yeah, they're pretty wild, barefoot bunch at times. So, and, yeah. of course, your older kids would be looking after the younger kids and raising them, helping your, yeah. helping your wife, right? Yeah, definitely, yeah. So you stayed there. And what was running through you and your wife's head? Um, I, you know, we were having serious, uh, uh, you know, we were blown away by the love of it all and uh, the love that we were showing and it was like an amazing adventure, um, but the mental stress was through the roof. It was like, have I done the right thing to my family? Um, are we going to? Are you there? Yes, I'm here, James. Oh, sorry, it cut out again. Um, yeah, I lost you. Um, yeah, I, I've never been in such a bad mental state in my life. And, um, you know, just the worry of have we done the right thing by our kids? Um, what if we what, what, what was – explain what worried you. Was it the – whole world was it how you're going to provide for your children yeah was it the loss of family or community was it all of the above all of the above um, everything would be compounding know, on you wouldn't it everything yeah i had i had a huge amount of family in gloryville i had a very close relationship with my dad and we knew when we left that that was all going to end that we would be cut off there would be no communication allowed um, we would be treated as enemies, and that is exactly what happened. So obviously that causes a huge amount of stress. And do you off. break your mum and dad's heart? Yeah, I knew I was breaking their heart. Um, and that that hurt to know that I was doing that, but it was the choice that, to us, it was the only choice we could make. Um, so it was, it was incredibly difficult. And your brothers and sisters? My brothers and sisters, um, yeah. I, I wasn't worried so much about them as I was about my parents, to be honest. Yes. But um, again, I, you know, some of my brothers and sisters I was very close to, others not so much. You know, just, I guess, a normal family dynamic. But, um, yeah, the ones that I was close to, you know, it really hurt to know that um, you were leaving them behind. I remember driving in the car over from the coast the night we left and just bawling my eyes out. I was just like, just devastated. Um, but I knew that was the choice we had to make. And did you doubt that you'd done the right thing at times? I, there was a lot of times we doubted it. Um, you know, when when things sort of got tough and that, I would think, oh, you know, is God telling us that we've we've made the wrong decision and we need to go back to Gloryvale? Um, there was always those nagging doubts, and that took probably years to completely get over that. Tell me, could you have gone back? 
No, I don't think so. No, no. Would they have had you back? Sorry. Yeah. Um, For a start, I think, you know, for the first month or so, few months after we left, they probably would have welcomed us back with open arms. But then I started um, going in there um, undercover and talking to people and um, handing out literature and undercover and stuff and very soon became um, public enemy number one, I guess. Mm. Um, And so that, that sort of cut ties completely. I was probably a bit radical now looking back at it. Um, I was pretty fired up and um, one thing that had made me, I guess, very angry was I I told you about how I wrote the letter to everyone. Um, So that was about two o'clock in the morning. At four o'clock, one of the ladies there got up to feed her baby and she found the letter on her floor. So she got it and took it to one of the leaders on the, their floor of the hostel. And that leader went and woke up all the other leaders. They went around every bedroom and gathered up the letters so no one could read them. Um, they the dairy farming guys had gone early to, he was down the farm getting the cows in for milking. And they went down, found him, and he had a copy of the letter, and they took it off him, so no one could read it. Um, so that did it put pressure on. Yeah, you just um, did it put pressure on you and your wife's relationship as you went through the ups and downs of the emotions, or did you stay a tight yeah. unit throughout? It did put pressure on it, um, but no, no, not undue pressure. Um, I don't know. There was some pretty rough times. Mm. Um, and how about your children? How did they handle it through this? I, I think our, our children probably handled it better than what we did. Um, yes. There was a couple of the younger ones that took it pretty rough, losing their friends, but actually the older children, the teenagers, adapted very quickly and, and seemed to handle it quite well. So what did you do for work? Um, so I was able to get a job um, reasonably quickly. We stayed at that uh, at that couple's house for six weeks. Um, so it was around mid-April. Uh, yeah, it was around it was Easter weekend. We shifted out to a farm near Pleasant Point. Um, we were given a job there um, on a dairy farm um, and I ended up managing the dairy farm and my 17-year-old and 15-year-old boy were staff on the farm. Nice. Um, so, yeah, we, we all lived in the house together and, and worked on the farm together. How wonderful. So we, um, we, we had made the decision as a family before you just cut out, James, but keep going. Am I back again? Yeah, just tell us yeah. about you made the decision so, on the farm to... Yeah, we made the decision before we left Gloryvale that we would, for the first year, we would pull our resources, um, our wages and everything, and save up enough money so we could go share milking after one year. 
Wow. Um, which is what we did. Um, and so after one year, we moved out to a farm um, on the east side of Tomoka. And we've been there for seven years. Wow. And you're loving it? Yep, absolutely. Um, you're loving your church? Yeah, yeah, very, very lucky, very much. Yeah, no, it's amazing church. It's amazing group of people. In a lot of ways, there's an, I, I don't know if some of the church people would like me saying this, but there's an element of uh, a close-knit family. Um, you just cut out, you just cut out, James. You said, you weren't sure whether the church members would allow, like you saying this, but you said there's an um, element of that, an element that's similar to Gloryvale in that. Oh yes, um, it's a very close knit family yeah. environment um, and a very loving, loving group of people. So it's got the good. Yep. Tell me, um, did your kids go to school? So. When we first left, we were very afraid of schooling outside of Gloryvale, and my wife had done quite a lot of teaching at Gloryvale. Um, she had been the headmaster's secretary for a number of years, and she had taught um, classes as well. And so she was very keen on homeschooling. Um, we homeschooled for about 18 months. And then baby number 14 came along and she was a very difficult baby. And so um, we decided to send the children to the Timaru Christian School. Um, and they went there for about three years and we're homeschooling again now, which is another story <laughs> how that came about we might have to save that for another day <laughs> yeah. um all the kids happy and well uh, absolutely no uh, uh, we've been very blessed i think our family has done amazingly um our oldest daughter owns her own business in Timaru and employs three staff um another daughter's married in Timaru, um, one of our, our second oldest son is sheer milking in the Waikato. What an what an amazing thing! That On the farm, your children are going to have a completely different life because of that one night that you left. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yep. And your brothers and sisters back in Gloryvale. Um, so since we left uh, eight years ago, um, there's, well, I don't know if I can count them, but I think Gloryvale since, since we've left. Uh, um, you just cut out again, James. This is terrible, but I can't stop. Yeah. How many have left, did you say? So four, four more of my siblings have left in the last few years. Okay. Do you, are you in? touch with them yeah no very much and i'm actually um things have changed at glory about a lot uh, over the last few years and i can contact brothers and sisters that are still oh, lovely. Glory about as well. lovely 
Lovely. Now, one of the things when you contacted me is so much I've got, I'm busting to talk to you about because you've had <laughs> such an amazing life. But one of the things that um, God knows how you make of transgenderism and all the rest of it. And I, I feel like running, running back to Glorivale myself, given how mad the world has become. Yep. Um, when I look at what's going on in my kids' school, I feel like running away back to Glorivale. Tell me, COVID came along. What did you make of that? Um, very quickly, um, I was just thinking that the mainstream, the official narrative was a bit crazy. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess I very early on um, started getting looking up information from overseas and sort of you know, seeing the age group of people that were dying and that and thinking, okay, this is nuts, what's going on here? Um, and then, um, yeah. And of course you understand the science and disease of, of herds, right? You understand cows getting sick and contagions. So... Yeah. Um, you were a well-placed, and also, I guess, you had been used to spotting bullshit. Yeah, um, I guess from from being at Glory, uh, we, had we had getting such a bad connection now. Try again. From being at Gloryvale, you'd learned to spot this stuff. Yeah. Very quickly learned that we had to question everything. Um, yes. Everything we were taught, you know, everything we'd been taught in the past, everything we were hearing, um, we had to question it all. And so I, I guess that set us in a good place um, for when the pandemic came along. Yeah. So you didn't buy it? No. Um, I've got a picture of you that's popped up when you turned the video out. And it looks like you with, I'm assuming, is that four daughters? Four daughters, yeah. Well, they look amazingly happy and healthy, but it looks to me like you're at the protest at Parliament. It, it does look that way, yeah. We were, we were up there to um, join the River of Filth, I guess. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah, I... Um, I guess as soon as, um, you know, the convoy came along, I, you know, was following that straight away and was very excited. And then following, um, probably mainly following Chantelle Baker, saying what was going on yes. at the protest. Yes. Um, and I remember on, was it February the 10th, the day yes. that they tried to push them out, I was watching a live stream from Stuff and also from Chantelle Baker. and the video I was seeing from stuff wasn't lining up with what they were saying was happening. No. Um, and I was like, okay, well, this is weird. Um, you know, they're not even making, I can see that what they're saying is not true. So why are they bothered having a, a live stream there? Cause they're just making themselves look silly. Um, and so, yeah, we decided, right, we're going up. Um, 
And another group from our church had just been up a few days before that as well. And they were just blown away by, and, and the same with us. It was just like, wow, this is amazing. I, I guess that the feeling of of love and acceptance and that was probably heightened by what we had just been through, you know, not being able to talk to anyone and, yeah. um, and being divided. Um, well, outside of my family events, going to that protest was the greatest experience of my life. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can totally understand you saying that. And yeah. so, you, in a funny way, the single source of truth, <laughs> the tyrannical control over our lives that was exhibited. Yeah. The shutting down of any dissent or as we now know even big tech shutting down information from outside we started to live like Rorvale. exactly um it, it became very scary to us very quickly the whole single source of truth narrative and that sort of thing was because I mean that was like what we had lived with all our lives that we weren't allowed to question what we were told. Um, all the news we received was censored. Um, we were told what to think. We weren't allowed to have an opinion that differed from what we were told. Um, and I guess that's why so many of us rebelled against that. It's um, fascinating and ironic, isn't it, that the media who have been hypercritical of Glorivale and I think abusive of it and people, and yet they partook of a cultish love of a government that was exercising a tyranny unprecedented in the Western world and presenting itself as a single source of truth with the journalists yep. not falling over laughing. The irony yeah. is rich, is it not? Oh, very, very, yeah. And so you've become a good listener of Reality Check Radio. Yes, um, I became a good listener of another um, news outlet a little while ago, but um, got a bit disenchanted with it. I think that's the um, platform, was it? It sure was, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I... When I, probably early on in my listening, when I first discovered it, um, I one of the first interviews I heard was Paul Brennan's interview with Matt Shelton. Oh, wasn't that and, stunning? And I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is, you know, we're going to be hearing this sort of interview all the time. But yeah, it sort of quickly became apparent to me that that wasn't what was going to happen. It's a um, funny thing, news, isn't it? Because I, to my great discredit, had followed um, SOS doctors and Dr. Mel Shelton, but I'd always been a bit wary of it because I despise the media. I don't believe the media, but the endless propaganda that they run affects your mind. And so I had a negative view of Dr. Shelton. 
And when I heard him on that interview, he was so smart, so across yeah. it, so <clears throat> wonderful. And I thought, how dreadful is this? Because they had painted such a negative view of this man. Yeah. Yeah, and you see that. We've seen a similar sort of thing all over again with the whole Posey Parker. Yes. Incident. Like they've painted her as a anti-trans activist and a Nazi and white mm. supremacist. Mm. Um, they've never interviewed her to to let no. people know what she actually says. No. And they didn't, you know, it's same with with um Dr. Matt Shelton and so many others, just yes. didn't give them an opportunity to speak, shut them down. Um yeah, and uh, as you said earlier, um talking about evil, uh, I think that's extremely evil. I think it's evil. Um, I think it's evil in the biblical sense now. I'm becoming a believer because um, keep going. Keep going. I I am um <laughs> I looked at that. And I thought we've lost all our basic Christian values. And yeah. everything that's in the Bible is being overturned like God created a man and a woman. Yeah. And yeah. that has to be turned on its head, you know. The and the other thing that troubles me about modern life is the lack of anything sacred. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I feel that time that we have lived through has forced for me a big rethink, and like a lot of people. And I'm coming to, it's been very hard for me. It's probably, I mean, nothing like what you've been through, but in a similar way, seeing through the disappointment of our parliament, you know, the dif disappointment in our news media, uh, the disappointment in experts, um, the disappointment in community leaders who just parroted the lockdown story and the jab. I'm taking it that you and your wife and your kids aren't jabbed. No, no. no. One of our oldest sons is. He made that decision himself, yeah. but the rest of us aren't. And yeah very glad that we're not yeah uh, well it looks i mean everything that matt sheldon said and got lost his practicing certificate for have has turned out to be true yeah and and um just like i guess you know you've found out um what you were brought up with wasn't true so much of it wasn't true so much of it yeah. was good but there was uh tyrannical, insul insul I can't say the word, you were isolated and had this tyrannical control over you. Um, James, what do you see for the future for yourself, but more particularly for New Zealand? I, you cut out about the, I think what, you said. What, what, what do you see for the, in the future for yourself and for New Zealand? Um, I guess for me, being a Christian, my faith is in the fact that God is in control and nothing can happen outside of his control. Um, and so that gives me a lot of security and peace and calm. Um, but I, I find it 
terrifying what's happening to the country. On the other hand, um, yeah, it's just insanity as far as I'm concerned. And it seems like the country wants to, is intent on destroying itself. Yes, um, and of course, we're exploring on the radio, Reality Check Radio, we've been exploring this wokery. And of course, none of the political parties are providing us with hope that the madness will end. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, at Gloriva, we just about always voted national um, because we saw them, I guess, as the conservative party and the party that was pro-farming. Um, but I certainly don't see it that way anymore. No. Um, I, I don't see them as being any different to Labour, really. Well, um, I feel the same way, I'm sorry to say, about my old party, the ACT Party. I'm bitterly disappointed because um, I was bitterly disappointed that they supported uh, the mandates and um, they lost me and the support of the lockdowns, uh, this tyranny. And yep. if they came out and David Seymour issued a, a 3,000 word apology, um, he might win me back, but you can't just come back from that. That was so no. fundamental uh, to me. And so I've become, I tell everyone I'm a single issue voter. I'll vote for the party that promises to launch a parliamentary or proper inquiry into these poor people that have been vaccine injured because yep. um, they have been appallingly treated. Appallingly treated. James, we yeah. will. Um, I can't. I can't thank you enough for coming on our show. Um, you have shared your life, and your wife's life, and your children's life with us, um, and opened yourself up to us, the Reality Check Radio, and the listeners. It's been an amazing experience for us to learn about Glorvale and to learn about your life. Um, I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of everyone when I say that we admire you and your wife's and your children's you. bravery and fortitude and making your way and your success. We admire those wonderful Christians that looked after you and helped you and your family. Uh, that is truly a wonderful, touching, heartwarming experience. And I'm sure I um, speak on behalf of everyone when I wish you and your wife and your children every success. Thank you. And um, you will be in our prayers for all of us. Thank um, you. Because you're wonderful. Thank you so much, James. You've been listening to Reality Check Radio. Um, I'm Rodney Hyde with Real Talk. I feel moved and different for having listened to James's story of him and his family. And you realize that all around us, there are amazing people that we brush against every day. And we can learn of their stories and learn so much and become better people for seeing what they have done. And I can't imagine leaving that community with 12 
and a half kids, or was it 13 and a half? No, 12 and a half. 12, 12 and a half. 12 and a half, 12 and a half kids with nothing but the clothes on your back and a nephew and a church group. And then for that church group to say, you and your 12 rowdy kids can live in our house and we'll camp here in our tent. It's a wonderful story. You're with Reality Check Radio and I'm Rodney Hyde, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. That was a remarkable man, uh, James Harrison. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.